Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, June 7th, 2022. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Everybody go to Amazon, go to Barnes & Noble, go wherever you get your books. It is time to order Noah's book, The Rise of the New Puritans, out at the end of this month. It's a must, a must-read. Uh, fun, revealing, important, entertaining. Rise of the New Puritans by Noah Rothman. Thank you, John. It has you. some profound relevance today because the news cycle is all about the the malicious influence, the insidious influence of dark humor, and how these jokes right. can really tear a society apart if you let them go unpunished. So what you're referring to, of course, is the fact that uh, my uh, my old friend Dave Weigel at the Washington Post has been suspended for a month without pay for uh, retweeting a joke about women being bipolar, for which he then apologized. Bipolar or bisexual, that was the joke. Right, bi, right. Women bi. are either bipolar or bisexual. He then apologized uh, because of its tastelessness. Uh, whereupon he was either before or after, I can't remember, set upon by one Felicia Sanmez of the Washington Post, uh, a notorious character we can get to in a bit. But Weigel's apology and then this uh, public assault by people with whom he worked, by the way, with whom he has shared bylines, whose own claim to have been suppressed by the Washington Post uh in a petition to the Washington Post, he signed and supported. Didn't matter. He, according to Felicia Sanmez, needed to be punished. The workplace that she works at, that she voluntarily works at, is a monstrous horror show because it permits people like Dave Weigel to retweet jokes that they didn't make. Uh, and then the apology turns out not to be uh, enough, and he is suspended for a month without pay. Am I missing anything? No, that seems to be account? the entirety of it. Right. Um, so we have a little bit of a disagreement here. So my line is, look, he retweeted something. This is why I got off Twitter myself three years ago. I got off Twitter because... You do something, you do something momentary in a moment, in a moment, 15 seconds, uh, that you may have to live down for the rest of your life. And uh, he retweeted something. Had he been less, I don't know, had he been more conscious or thought through the chess move aspect of anything you do publicly and how it might affect other people and then how they might come at you and then what you will do in response and all of that, he would have said to himself, as I, figured i needed to say to myself at various times like if i'd known the kind of trouble that x would get me and i wouldn't have done it in the first place so he da does damage control he apologizes the apology is no longer acceptable apologies are not sufficient for the offense um i think you know it was perfectly fine for him to apologize uh, or to say that he had done something unthinking in in order to pr in order to maintain at his workplace what we call in home situations in Judaism shalom bayit, which means peace in the house, where you don't get into fights or unnecessary provocations with the people you live with and you love because um, uh, whatever benefit you may may accrue to you in the moment is not worth the trouble and the disruption that is caused by your decision to do whatever it is that you did. So in the interest of Shalom Bayit, you basically restrain yourself. So in that sense, I think what Dave did was fine. Abe, you have a kind of different take. Yeah, I actually disagree very strongly. Um, I think when a, a colleague tries to publicly get you fired over a, a, a trifling nothing, I mean, yeah, it's a, I, I understand it. Could, it's an offensive joke, but who cares? I mean, they, so jokes can be offensive. That's a different. That's a separate subject. Anyway, um, to that's apologize, <laughs> to 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 apologize to to in response 
to um, a sort of totalitarian, an attempt at a totalitarian, totalitarian crackdown um, on, on, on your speech, essentially. I mean, if it's which, what we're going to call retweeting a joke, I think is um, very wrong. I mean, we, we, we counsel on this podcast a lot about courage and having the courage and, and, you know, we hope to see it from people in ordinary positions who don't have uh, mouthpieces, who who aren't uh, on you know social media with blue checks and 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 whose stories and their whose side of the stories couldn't get out there. Um, but so when there's someone like like Weigel who could who could stand up and say, you know, uh, uh, I'm not going to apologize. I'm I'm I'm. I'm, I'm suddenly they're, they're swarming around me now for 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 doing nothing. This is the problem. Um, I think that's what he should have said. And an apology now is taken as an admission. See, that's the thing. It's not about it's not about actually being sorry. It's saying, aha, see, now he knows he's complicit. He's he's wrong. Um, and it's blood in the water. And it, it proved to be in this case, as it has in so many others. And I'll just say one more thing. I'm even though I'm all for uh, I think everyone should be able to tell whatever offensive jokes they want. OK, that is that is my position. That said, I wouldn't have retweeted that on Twitter, not because I genuinely think it's a, a, a hurtful or because I would have been thoroughly cognizant of the potential ramifications of doing that. That's one thing not to do it because you don't want to put yourself in this position. But if you do it, I say don't apologize. It's not clear that he apologized because of the outcry or that he apologized because somebody said, ooh, what did you do, Dave? And he's like, oh, boy, I made a mistake here. I better apologize. The, the storm that came down on his head happened after his apology, not before. The apology did not. The apology evoked the attack, provoked the attack by Felicia Sanmez and stuff, who has her own reasons for hating the Washington Post, though she works there because they had decided last year that she could not write about certain topics because of her own controversial personal history in dealing with those topics. I, I just believe, wanna, yeah, go ahead. I just want to clarify the timeline for myself because maybe I don't have it right then. So are you, so then she she composed her tweet about his retweet after he had apologized? I think so because if you look at no, her he initially retweet, she very her her very first reaction was it's so great to work at I'm paraphrasing so great to work at a place that allows people to retweet stuff like this so she was right. the first person to flag it for the purposes well, of making it a well an issue. hold on I'm not sure that's entirely right because I believe her retweet was a screenshot of the tweet that he had already deleted. Do you see what I'm saying? I, th we're now getting into the weeds here, but if he deleted the tweet and then she goes to say it's awful, effectively, it's awful working in the Washington Post because people you work with retweet stuff like this. But I think he had already, the thing that said Dave Weigel retweeted had already been removed. Um, and then Sanmez screen capped someone she had a screen cap of his the thing indicating that he had retweeted the joke and then she said it's fantastic work in the news outlet where retweets like this are allowed so she went at him after he had deleted it and apologized because she has a beef with the washington post where she works which is that it's mean to her doesn't treat her fairly um She's a very litigious person. She sued them. She lost. She she took some sort of legal action against lost uh, lost um, claims to be you know like a, a, a you know victim of trauma and a survivor of trauma relating to what harassment. I, I mean, I can't. I, I don't even care. It doesn't matter. Point is, he deleted this thing, and that's and then and this is where it goes to sort of Abe's point. It's almost like. He did what you're supposed to do. You did something thoughtless. You instantly apologize, right? And then the trouble starts. Not at, if you already say, I did something bad and I apologized. 
not I'm I'm not going to apologize. And then eventually you apologize because you're being craven. Uh, after people yell at you, but he did it anyway. So, um, so there are two strands to this, right? Okay. There's sort of the <clears throat> really base element of it where Sanez is is leveraging this perhaps genuine outrage, but also you know has a philosophical or a professional problem with with Washington Post to to leverage her to prosecute her professional jealousies, right? But it resonates broadly the. Their, her outrage over the joke, in part because there's this real philosophy abroad today that takes that views the table setting for dark humor, the anguish that contributes to dark humor um, as um, an egregious sin. And to laugh at someone else's pain, to take enjoyment in someone else's pain is an ethical violation um, that should be policed. That has broad purchase in a particular segment of society that has anathematized the kind of humor that allows you a release at the end of a setup that involves horrible things, humor value that finds, or that finds humor value in violent events, racist events, um, unspeakable crimes uh, are that are the sources of humor. And we've talked about this plenty. And I write about it in the book in particular, that the case study, I think that really exposes this tendency on the puritanically inclined progressive left uh, is Hannah Gadsby, who doesn't allow you that release, who ostentatiously- Hannah Gadsby is a, is a comedian from Australian New Zealand. Australian New Zealand. Australian, Australian sorry. One of the other. No, uh, Australian. She's from Tasmania. Right. Right. I'm right, sorry. She's uh, yeah, Tasmanian. Um, so she's a comedian who does comedy about how it's, it's not funny. Comedy she is funny is a, comedy, when she wants to be funny. Right. But comedy is a weapon of the powerful- to uh, punish the weak and uh, that her famous special Nanette is a comedy special that is about making you feel like crap and not laughing. It's um, painful by design and that not, and there are plenty of laughs in the net, but that's not what her fans like the most. They like the anguish. They like the pain. They like the performative ostentatious um, cross bearing that she does with her own real legitimate pain that sometimes she turns into a joke, but sometimes she doesn't allow you a punchline to release the tension. And that's what they like. They like the tension. If you view, if you were to view this uh, bipolar bisexual line as a dirty joke. And I said to you 20 years ago, somebody, somebody or other told a really disgusting, dirty joke at work and, you know, was suspended for a week. Uh, because women in earshot were really deeply offended. Like they were standing around the water cooler when there was a water cooler and when people were in the office together standing around water coolers and somebody told this really off-color, you know, sexist joke and and women were offended and then it got to the HR department. The HR department, you know, the boss suspends the guy for a week for telling an off-color joke. I'm not sure we would instantly say that that was wrong. Like he did something in a social setting that was inappropriate, that made his colleagues uncomfortable and angry, ruins the good working order of a, of a workplace, uh, makes people uh, hostily inclined toward each other. Not good. You need to make an example of someone so that it won't do it again and other people won't do it. I think that's pretty standard issue managerial stuff um what's interesting about what happened here is that weigel's behavior in the immediate aftermath of what happened was what you are supposed to do when you do something this is where i was going with this where you do something where you've made a faux pas and you've done something that is a faux pas is you say oh my god i made a faux pas i'm really sorry i didn't mean to hurt anybody's feelings i wasn't thinking um and but that's something else happens when this stuff goes on on social media because it's all an example of something larger right so felicia sanmez says people are emailing me saying how can i trust the washington post to write unbiased things about women if it employs somebody like dave weigel or how can I, you know, trust the Washington Post or people at the Washington Post saying, how can I trust that you have my best interest at heart? All of that kind of thing. 
you know, I don't know. I mean, if that's where if that's where this conversation goes, then nothing any but everything anybody says in the aftermath of what or and he didn't even say it. He just quoted it becomes an example. It's a larger social example. It's not this guy did something in his workplace that was offensive to other people in his workplace, and he had to apologize. And what's more, the apology was deemed insufficient by management because they needed to make an example of him. But this has now become a, this is now some, oh, Abe, go ahead. Well, yeah, what it's become is it's, it's, it's about policing his thoughts, you see, because it's about what this says about who he is. So he, we, he's revealed an inner secret. He's revealed something dark about himself now. Uh, so he cannot be trusted as, as his character and his values are faulty. Uh, that's the creepy. That's the totalitarian aspect. Well, you know, there's one ironic, savagely ironic aspect to this, which is that somebody, you know, one of our one of our friends, I don't know, comfortably smug or my my, my nephew, Noam Bloom or somebody like that surfaced the fact that he had written slighting tweets a couple of years ago about, you know, everyone's obsession with cancel culture. Oh, everyone's so upset. I, I, what I want to read about more on this site is cancel culture, you know, that kind of ironic and obvious way. And it's like, you know, that's like the gun. That's like Chekhov's gun hanging in the wall in the first act. Like if you say, I want to hear all about this cancel culture, because I think it's silly. Don't worry. The cancel culture gun is going to go off and shoot you in the face in act three. And so in that sense, there's something a little delicious about it, right? There's Dave. He's a very, very woke. He's become a very woke reporter. He's a very politically, he's a really nice guy, by the way, but he's become a very, you know, and, 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 and a civil guy, which is why this is so interesting. And he's become very woke and very much a kind of lefty voice um, and stuff like that. And he, uh, and so that they came after him but you, they only no come inoculation after, they only yeah. come after their own i mean right. they or they can only get the scalps of their own well that's what's important and that that is a key aspect of this um which is they can only right they can only get the scalps of their own because if they came after you you or you or noah you know for something i, I would be like i would go away. Right. I mean, that would be my, as an employer, I would say, go away. You know, Christine wouldn't accuse you of, of, mm. of sexism and, and, and we, and I would say, go away. So you have to. But again, that doesn't happen to us in part because we know how to play by the rules. My account now has been sanitized to the point where it is just obnoxiously plotting self-promotion. And I can't imagine why anybody still follows me because we know the rules. We know they come after us. They came after us first. And then, then they can't derive any authority or power from the fact that we don't bend the knee to them. So they focus on their own <clears throat> because that presents a, a sense of efficacy. But that's also the only universe that they really care about. Felicia Sanmez is engaged in an internal struggle with the Washington Post, her employer. I mean, if she feels about the Washington Post, the, the, a normal person feeling the way she feels about the Washington Post would leave the Washington Post and go work somewhere else. But that is not what she is going to do. If she believes that they have mistreated her, if she believes that her concerns in life and how she functions, that the workplace is hostile and unjust and that it's terrible and she she brings some kind of an action against them that she does not succeed in, 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 in winning, she should go somewhere else. She's not going anywhere else because now what she's going to do is sit there <clears throat> and dare them I don't know what dare them to fire her, dare them to do something about her, dare them <clears throat> so that she can then come at them and say, you fired me for my opinion. You fired me because I'm a woman. You fight, you know, I'm looking for a you know multi-million dollar settlement because of your misbehavior. Um, that's, that's the other part of this is before we get to, you know, high and mighty about cancel culture and, how they want to destroy people who make jokes on their own side. There's something else very specific going on here. And when another reporter there, another very woke reporter, Jose Del Real said, Felicia, I mean, what Dave said was uh, terrible. It's a terrible retweet. Um, but, you know, we, we all work together 
<clears throat> there needs to be some civility in the way we handle each other. She then went after his jugular for saying, <clears throat> uh, where, uh, let me see if I can find the specific quote. I'm sorry. Um, Felicia, we all mess up from time to time. Engaging in repeated and targeted public harassment of a colleague is neither a good look nor is it particularly effective. It turns the language of inclusivity into clout chasing and bullying. I don't think this is appropriate. Uh, rallying the internet to attack him for a mistake he made doesn't actually solve anything. We all mess up in some way or other. There is such a thing as challenging with compassion. And Sanmez said, Jose, Dave's retweet was indeed terrible and unacceptable. It was also public. And it's important that all those who saw Dave's tweet also see Washington Post reporters standing up for our newspaper's values, one of which is that comments denigrating women will not be tolerated. So it's like, you shut up too. And then subsequently. Don't, don't you think you can open a mouth to me? You want me to summon, you want me to summon my mob on you? But Attack the, the post has come down on her side every time. And subsequently, Sally Busby, um, who's the editor over there, executive editor at the Post, uh, sent a, an internal message, you know, sort of admonishing anybody who engaged in the behavior that Sanez was calling out. We only know about that email because Sanez screen capped it and retweeted it and criticized her for not taking more severe action, which I think then resulted in in Dave's suspension, if I have the timeline correct there, but not Rial's. And that's where the problem is. Because she's called, she's called for another scalp and hasn't gotten it yet, so she's still on this crusade. Well, he just said you have to be compassionate. Like you know, I don't know. It's a little hard to. He didn't do anything except defend Dave, right? So, but she's saying compassion is the problem, right? I mean, compassion. I hate the word compassion, but I, I I'm just fa it's all it's all fascinating. So basically, uh, the the interesting point about the market opportunity that all of this presents is, um, you know, these people are tying themselves up in knots and twisting themselves into pretzels and trying to, you know, live within the strictures of this, um, uh, of, a, of a new moral code in which the most extreme elements of the believers in the need to change the code uh, are, have the power, have all the power. And, um, you know, I sit here feeling liberated because I am not it among their number. And this whole episode sort of dovetails with another, it's not a joke per se, but a, a flip comment that has consumed the world of, uh, of law and law education involving Ilya Shapiro. His subsequent suspension, he was uh, uh, tapped to head this this arm of Georgetown Law School, which would, you know, sort of encompass some conservative thought, and then subsequently wrote this one comment that we're about to talk about that got him into a lot of trouble and was suspended, similarly, for a significant period of time, uh, and then ultimately reinstated. His comment wasn't really a joke, but it was flip, and it would require you an to dedicate yourself to an uncharitable interpretation of his remarks, and also uh, the the idea that you yourself can uncover through your uh, powers of, of discernment and perception, this seedy, unspoken aspect of, of hatred and discrimination that exists deep within the heart of somebody you don't fully understand or know because they say something that you disagree with. That, and that, like, like we've been saying before, this just balloons out of proportion. You you anoint yourself as somebody who's it's just an inquisitor who can actually can. Uh, you know, identify in this one comment, a whole wealth, a whole history of prejudices and extrapolate from them you know, the that problem, your prejudices Noah, will involve, yeah. will, will, will in, in harm Noah, everybody in your orbit. Noah, I mean, you haven't even said what the comment was. Well, I needed, I wanted to set the table ahead of it. I know, but I mean, we sort of have to explain that he was commenting on 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 the um, uh, Supreme Court appointment uh, of uh, Katanji Brown Jackson, and I'm I'm looking for the specific quote because he of course deleted it, so um, I, I don't I don't I can't I'm having trouble finding it, but he basically said you know there are other there are better kind of better affirmative action choices, 
<laughs> well, he, want, he wanted to particular yes, he had particular candidates for the Supreme Court nominee and was lamenting how the Biden administration had closed closed off opportunities to anyone who wasn't born female or African-American, um, which was subsequently yeah. alas doesn't fit right. into the latest. Right. He said objectively best pick for Biden is Sri Srinivasan. But that, alas, doesn't fit into latest intersectional hierarchy. So we'll get lesser black woman. He apologized for the wording of the tweet. He said he regretted his poor choice of words which undermined my message that no one should be discriminated against his or her gender or skin color. Since he was saying, look, Sri Srinivasan is a obviously is a South Asian minority, but uh, it has to be a, it's, it's since Biden made sure that it was a black woman. He's now appointed a black woman who is actually lesser than Sharisha Navasian, in his opinion, but saying lesser black woman was a particularly wildly infelicitous use of phrase. I think we can all agree. Of course. Um, and he apologized. And then they suspended him. And then they reinstated him. But he wasn't talking about a particular individual, by the way. This was before any nominee was was right. announced. He was right. lamenting but- how this chief category was going to be demographic rather than meritorious. And then they they said uh, that uh, when he was reinstated after uh, months of this suspension uh, by before he ever took his job uh, by the president of Georgetown, it was on the grounds that he tweeted what he tweeted. He tweeted before he was an employee of Georgetown uh, and therefore could not be disciplined on that basis. Uh, and as he said, like all the guy would have had to do when this all started was look at a calendar. But I think what's striking here is, I mean, there's many striking things about this. And Ilya Shapiro has resigned uh, as he wisely should have done. The interesting thing, of course, is trying to suss out what it means that he was going to go there in the first place. It was almost as though there was a thing that happened at Georgetown where against their better judgment or something like that, but for all kinds of, they ended up picking this conservative legal voice in this job, which then meant that he would have had a target on his back regardless for the rest of his life. And he wanted to do it anyway. And this is where things get complicated. So I say, oh, my God, thank God I don't have this problem. Right. I said earlier, you know, like where where we live and how we work, we are not subject to cancellation in the way that other people are. But, you know, let's say that out of nowhere, I was offered the editorship of The New York Times. Now, I'm not saying Ilya Shapiro getting a big job at Georgetown Law School when he was at, I think, George Mason before uh, is like getting a job at the New York Times. But it is like moving from a conservative corner into sort of like a bastion of establishmentarian liberalism and therefore something devoutly to be wished if you were if you are a, a person who's interested in credentialing and interested in all of that and what's more good for the cause because now you're going to be a conservative voice at a liberal place and maybe you can therefore help bring a greater sense of diversity to an important institution like Georgetown but you know maybe this is the mistake maybe things have already gone too far Ilya Shapiro's mistake was in thinking that this wouldn't happen to him because if it happened to him five days before he started, but it would have happened to him five days after he started. All he has to do is open up his mouth in a classroom. Someone's in there, you know, with a notebook, just waiting to come up to, to quote something that he said that will be used against him, torture him, get him suspended. And so this, this is the power of the you know, liberal establishment, which is like even conservatives who understand that it's corrupted and bad and that, you know, bad stuff goes on there and that we should stay away from it. It's still like we're still moss and that's still the flame. You Um, know, professor at Georgetown University of Law, this is flagged for us today. Alicia Blair Hopples. 
I'm not sure how to pronounce her name, but she has a piece in the Washington Post this this morning. Um, very similar to Sanders attacking her institution, the institution that employs her, because the institution conducted a review of this conduct and found that Shapiro did not violate policies of non-discrimination or anti-harassment with this with this uh, offensive comment, that it was um, protected by the university's free speech policy. Uh, and the university's free speech policy is on trial now, according to uh, this particular essay, in part because Shapiro had exposed the extent to which the university was willing to subordinate its principles, uh, or rather it subordinated its obligations to equity uh, to this principle of free speech, because his quote, his characterization of black women, quote, and his presence would have easily had a chilling effect on the speech of these students who already have far too many complexities and challenges they must consider when speaking in law school. His, his uh, very presence in the classroom uh, would have, quote, um, closed off the center's offerings to our black female students and probably to many other women and students of color who saw and understood that his tweet meant to mean that black people and women are of lesser intelligence and import. You want to talk about a chilling effect? Try being a conservative on that campus. I mean, uh, chilling effect doesn't even begin to dis describe yeah. it because the chilling effect idea is that you know you are forced to consider whether you want to you know speak honestly about things or write what you believe because you know life will be made more difficult for you i i, I think the chilling effect uh leads to self-censorship in this case even self-censorship isn't going to save you i mean you know Ilya shapiro could have been chastened by this ambitious to continue at Georgetown law, continued to do what he could do, you know, even like changed his ideological coloration, whatever. And there still would have been some rapporteur in his classroom, like taking notes, looking to destroy him for his past that or his present. They would have found it. Yeah, that's what very I mean. easily yeah. because he's, he's, he's talking about law. So he, he would have, he would have, uh, he would have uh, uh, sort of described positions that that he holds uh, as conservative that would have absolutely enraged students. I mean, just the I assumption, mean, sorry, just the assertion yeah, on the part of this this law professor here just assumes a level of fragility on the part of these students that I don't think is fair or true. It assumes that they would never expose themselves to this individual for fear of something, what, coming into contact with a bias or a discriminatory thought or phrase. Again, being a conservative on campus is to expose yourself to discriminatory thought and phrases on a semi-regular basis. Uh, and that's not something that is unendurable. Indeed, it is beneficial. It makes you a, a more rigorous student, a more I, uh, durable student. See, I'm more fascinated in the, in the longer term by the infantilization effect here, which is, we can have conversations about whether or not there are certain types of, con of, of, of reading subject matter, things like that in say junior high school that are really not appropriate for kids, you know, or, or, or elementary school. How much do you really want them to know about the Holocaust? How much should they learn about, you know, the kind of crimes committed against uh, slaves? I mean, specific details because it will be haunting it will be traumatic and they don't have any cultural context in which to place any of this or any sense that, you know, this is history, whatever. That's a real conversation that people have. And then of course, material about sexuality. We have now come to the point at which we are adopting the same kind of concerns, but I think disingenuously, we're not, in other words, the establishment is, toward people who are in graduate school. That means that they are, they are, at the youngest, 22 or 23, at the youngest. And the language that you quote from that op-ed, Noah, is the language of, oh, it's gonna be so difficult for them to maneuver their way through this very complicated bramble. And, you know, it's just the, the traumatic experience of knowing that somebody might have these kinds of thoughts. These are people who've been through 12 years of, of schooling and then four years of college and then they're going to law school 
And according to the theory that we have been had drummed into us over the last five or six years, they have lived their lives marinated in racism, monstrous racism, hostility, and a culture that degrades them, downgrades them, and treats them like they're nothing. And then they get to law school, and one guy says affirmative action is problematic, and then they're that's it. That's that's what's going to destroy the rest of their lives. I mean, haven't they already negotiated uh, a lot along the way to to get to Georgetown Law School? That's why I say we take this too seriously at, at face value. None of this is about what it appears to be about. Georgetown hired a conservative. People at Georgetown Law School don't want there to be a conservative. He said something. He apologized. They made a mistake hiring conservative because they don't want a conservative. The conservative made a mistake accepting the position because it was stupid of him not to understand. He's a good guy, Alicia. I don't mean to call him stupid, but it was there was some blindness and not understanding that this was a poison chalice that he was being handed, this job offer. And then they use this disingenuous stuff about how oh, the students are all, you know, fragile snowflakes just as a battering ram. They don't mean it. They don't think it. This is where I'm now like, you Noah. like, this is where I think, you know what? This is all just bullshit. These people don't think that these kids can't can't hear somebody say this. They're not kids. You know, they're not kids like my mother had two children by the time you know, a lot of these people started in law school. They're not kids. What well, you know, I mean, that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous to treat them that way. It's ridiculous and condescending, as you say, no, but I mean, you know, the point is like they don't believe it either. They're just using it's sure. just weapon, it's just weaponizing whatever is to hand. Hey, I may be I may be on the other side of both of you on this one. Um, I think I think they think I think that progressives believe that the uh, confronting conservative ideas um, are a sort of genuine potential trauma. I think they really do believe it. And I think they believe it because, in fact, there is so little adversity in in the lives of of 20-somethings, generally speaking, uh, in the 21st century, that w- this now constitutes a trauma. To be clear, I think it's both. <laughs> I think this principle it has an in- is an instrument of, of utility to prosecute professional jealousies. I also think they believe the principle that it is a mark of seriousness on their parts, um, although it looks to us like fundamentalism, um, to reject nuance and and reject the idea that there are multiple interpretations of especially flippancy and uh, comedic effect that leverages somebody's pain even and especially groups of people who experience pain and especially marginalized groups of people who experience pain i think they do absolutely subscribe to that principle but the principle itself has been weaponized in a very uh utilitarian fashion i mean just sort of take this uh, kind of like to, to follow along this uh, line of argument. Yeah. So they believe that listening to arguments that uh, are, are bad, you know, can cause you pain. But as I say, the whole doctrine under which they function is that uh, uh, people of color spend their lives awash in pain. Is this a worse pain? Well, the subordinate discretion, though, and intent. I mean, you're you're supposed to disregard intent. The intent of Ilya Shapiro here was to be dismissive, not to be hurtful. The intent of David Weigel was to uh, make you laugh, not to offend, not to hurt people, not to conjure up, you know, the... The, the whole experience of people who are LGBT, who have experienced discrimination or people who have mental disorders who experience discrimination, that wasn't the intent. The intent is obvious. People who share the commonality of the ling- English language understand intent. We're asked to disregard it specifically in order to adhere to a, a very uh, stark principle that, that has no room for, for nuance. It's also very much against our, our understanding of 
you know, fairness in the legal sense. Because intent is what matters in adjudicating crimes. Let's say a crime may occur, right? I mean, a thing may happen. A person is shot. Someone shot the person. Why, what the intent was of the shooter is what determines whether it was a crime and whether the shooter's, you know, actions were merited or justified based on the behavior of the other person, right? Intent is everything. Uh, intent is nuance. Intent, and intent may not be, in other words, you may, it also may not be sufficient to, to, to save you, but it is a key calculation in understanding anything is what to what extent you wanted think something to have the effect that it had or whether that was something that got away from you in some fashion or other or um and so that is a very fascinating point because it is ultimately totalitarian to disregard intent the issue is is did this what happened here was that a net positive for the working power order or a net negative and if it's a net positive then you're fine if it's a net negative you can be screwed for any reason because what matters is the collective or what matters is, you know, the power structure or something like that. That's the nature of totalitarianism. Okay. Let's, let me just um, stop for a minute and uh, talk to you about, I believe we have an advertiser today, so I'm going to find out who that is. And it is of course our good friends at the X chair, uh, somebody said to me, you know, I've listened to the podcast. I'm not, I, I, not, I want the chair. I want the X chair because of the way I talk about it. So get the X chair. It's, it's uh, at a, at a, a couple of people at a, at a bar mitzvah this weekend said this to me. So, so get the X chair. Look, you spend more time every day in your office chair than in your car or bed. It's why it's so important to invest in the right chair to spend those hours with the right level of support and comfort to get the most productivity out of your day. Look, X-Chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar, DVL, offers the ultimate customized support. And your X-Chair can give you a massage. It can heat you up in the, when it's cold or cool you down when it's hot. And now, thanks to X-Chair's new FS360 armrest, you can even adjust your armrests to the perfect position. That is why these features, these unique X-Chair features, help the hours at your desk fly by in complete comfort. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X-CHAIR is a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month, xchaircommentary.com. Thursday night, we are getting, uh, it's opening night for the January 6th commission in a primetime special that will preempt such things as Steve harvey's all-star family feud and so you think you can dance so that the public can see the january 6th commission i'm making fun of this because i think the january 6th commission is a very important effort and then i read about the way the commissioners or the, the you know the people who are on the commission talk about it and i see this story that they've hired this uh, guy who used to run good morning america to produce it whatever that means and um, and then I see that there's a dispute, according to Axios, over what measures the January 6th Commission thinks should be taken. And there's some d disagreement over you know, what they should propose, since some of them want to propose the abolition of the Electoral College. And I think, OK, good. This is yet another case in which Congress has now screwed something up that's important. Do we have it now that that doesn't mean uh, do, are you guys with me or um, am I getting too cynical? Well, we don't want to prejudge <clears throat> what they're going to present, but uh, it's hard to ignore the obvious signs of theatricality, uh, at least associated with hiring a television producer to put this thing together. And, and that might be very effective. Again, I don't want to prejudge these proceedings because they are very serious. The subject matter is extraordinarily serious. But yeah, can anybody stay within their remit? I mean, the remit of this organization, this committee, is not to reform election law. 
are certainly not to propose ridiculous things like the abolition of the Electoral College, which is well beyond the scope of what this committee was supposed to be investigating. It was supposed to be investigating what happened on January 6th and who is responsible for it. And that's it. And maybe that's what we'll we'll be privy to. And I hope we are, because a lot of things need to be answered. And we're getting indictments now. And there's a lot there's new information about what what the Trump campaign was saying to Georgia electors and saying, you know, very keep this a secret. This is basically a conspiracy. This is in writing. So this is a conspiracy. So keep this to yourself. Um, this is the sort of thing that we should be privy to. I don't know what we're going to see on that night, but there is an element of of self-delusion that Democrats have convinced themselves of. And this isn't just Democrats, obviously. Liz Cheney doesn't count as a Democrat who thinks with a Democratic mindset, but they have convinced themselves that anything that comes out of their mouth is true and good and just. And that if it isn't well-received or received at all by the general public, it's just a matter of finesse. It just has to be presented in a new fashion, uh, a glitzier fashion, a glamorous fashion. It's all about messaging, um, not the substance of the message. And this has to cut through a lot of noise. And this is no one's priority. Investigating January 6th is not high on the list of voters' interests. The people who will be tuned into this are probably hard to convince because the only people who care about this sort of thing are already very partisan, already dug in on one side or the other. So for this to make news, it will have to be newsy. I, I think it's we know quite enough to, to prejudge it, to be honest. I, I, I think the... The, hire, the hiring of the television producers adds a sort of dystopian um, quality to all this. Um, that you know that these, these these are this is our entertain these are our entertainments. But there's also something else going on here that's uh, in addition to the idea that they want to foist um, radical schemes uh, or, or at, least, at least float them uh, in in this process. This is also geared at midterms, right? So it's 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 you know you know they're 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 hoping to convince the American voter that that Republicans cannot be trusted with your vote. I mean that's your um, not not your theme. The this is the headline right uh, on the New York Times, which was a way the January six revelations are a way to recast the midterms. Um, that's that's really gauche on the part yeah. of the Times to say out loud. But again, I have very little sympathy for Republicans who notice this. This is their desired outcome. When they nixed the blue ribbon independent commission to investigate this stuff, and it was left to a Democratic committee, which is what they knew would be the alternative and what they wanted to be the alternative, they wanted to make, it th make this into a partisan hash that Republicans had no input in, and that's what they're going to get. Okay, so <laughs> uh, if the Republicans, you know, get a, a, a partisan, here, here's, let me put it this way. We had a whole conversation yesterday about this Dan Pfeiffer theory that, you know, because conservatives have Fox News, they they control the conversation, political conversation, the American, uh, you know, in the United States. And we, of course, said, oh, really? Well, what about MSNBC, CNN, ABC, NBC, CBS, uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, the Associated Press, the entire magazine core, you know, glossy magazine core of the United States and all that. Had this been a Republican hearing about a Democratic conspiracy, da, 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 would they have gotten primetime? I think they would have gotten to three networks to provide primetime coverage. They knew they could get primetime coverage. Now, I grant you that January 6th, and I, I don't grant you because this is my opinion, and I know some people listening will not agree with me. I think January 6th is one of the worst days of my lifetime, was a disgusting calamity. Trump was properly impeached and should have been removed from office and denied the right to ever run again. He did. It was his behavior that encouraged this effort and insurrection and the storming of the Capitol building for the first time since, you know, ever or 1812 or whatever you want to call it. And so that's where I am on this as a, as a matter of course. Um, but I, I, I still think, you know, so therefore I, I wish that it were a more serious and more sober effort that it was being made by the January 6th committee. But of course, there are people on the January 6th committee that make that impossible. I mean, Eric Swalwell's presence on the January 6th committee means that it's a clown car. He is a preposterous, ridiculous person. He should be nowhere, you know, he put him near a microphone you know, he's he's Marjorie Taylor Greene on their side. 
So I, I'm I'm uninterested, and you know, and Adam Adam Schiff is not much better, and so you know, they once again, Congress, as all as always happens in a lot of high value, high pressure hearings, is going to be discredited by the fools that they stick on these committees who make a hash of them. Um, that's a, a classic dynamic, and it's 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 unfortunate because it would be it would be great if. A report came out that was sober and that was something that would be very hard for you know Trump and his apologists to simply say, oh, it's just all partisan. Because it's gonna be all partisan. Now, maybe there are factoids and things that are gonna come out that that accusation uh cannot erase, or you know, it will will it will look petty, they'll look so serious that. It will look petty for them to be erased. Like we don't know what Jared and Ivanka told the committee, and the committee, you know, they didn't didn't have questions prepared, and maybe they said something. Maybe somebody inadvertently said something in the course of their interviews, which apparently we're going to see bits and pieces of produced by James Goldston. Um, and maybe that will just drop 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 your jaw, and you'll say, "Oh my God, this is this is as bad as they as as any Democrat could have hoped that it would be." In terms of discrediting Trump and 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 his people, uh, but if that doesn't happen, then the very way that Democrats pursued this, uh, you know, making uh, will 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 make it very hard for anybody to come to an independent reckoning of what happened on January 6th based on the fact finding that was done by this commission or this committee. Excuse me, but. Uh, so thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow for Abe and Noah. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the camera working.